I think the model that that works best for everyone is that Amazon gradually gets out of retail altogether on its own behalf. And then it just specialized in running the world's best e-commerce platform. I think everybody would be happy to give Amazon 15% of the take to do that. If Amazon could get out of the business of actually selling products, I think that would suit everybody best. You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. No surprise to anyone here, but Amazon is a big player in the industry. How's that for understatement? My conversation with Dr. Robin Gastor today is all about the relationship to our industry and where it goes from here. What will become of Amazon down the line and is the current model sustainable? Whether you're listening now in 2021 or come back to see how the assessment here plays out, thanks for listening and enjoy. Dr. Gaster, aka Robin, it is great to have you here in Ecomonics. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, this is one of the episodes that uh, where um, your people reached out to my people <laughs> and uh-huh. that's always a blast. It, it really doesn't mean a lot yeah. to, to get the, the intake as well as the, uh, the outtake. So uh, I, I appreciate having you here. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? I'm, I'm doing great. I'm in the beautiful Hudson Valley and I'm visiting some friends. And so this is a wonderful day. Lovely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's finally beautiful here too, uh, here in Canada. It's uh, st- still, still windy, but where we'll take whatever we can get at this point. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So uh, I I know uh, what you're up to because uh, I have the distinct privilege of being able to do research and and be informed. But to our audience, we got to tell them a little about yourself. So what do you do and what are you up to these days? So what I've done for the last 30, 40 years really is uh, look at problems at, at the intersection of data, politics, and economics. And mostly this is to do with programs aimed at improving and accelerating innovation. And that's the sort of the application of new solutions to problems. And, and as part of that, I have done a lot of work on program evaluation, trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So that's sort of my training is to look at things and say, okay, well, what's working and what's not working. And because uh, I'm interested in the broader economy, I, I've done work that points to sort of key areas and and concerns. So I've done work recently on how to scale innovation, how you get from a startup to a big company and and how places like Sacramento and other regions can can do things like that, can help. And I'm also very interested in the transformation of the labor market. I think we're going through a profound transformation. I wrote a book, uh, which took me to Amazon, actually. I wrote a book about the gig economy, and I was not happy with it, so I didn't publish it. But I spent a a year or two really thinking hard about what's happening in terms of the destabilization of our lives and our jobs and how that has pluses and minuses, a lot of minuses that we don't pay much attention to. So those are the sort of areas that I like to think about. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so before we jump into the, the real meat of this, you know, I was uh, participatory in the gig economy for quite some time. What I found yeah. was 
I, you know, I, I, I done a number of sales jobs, um, you know, some other, uh, uh, laborish jobs too. One of my early jobs was a grocery boy before that was a referee for a, for a game called Worley Ball. It's like lacrosse and bumper cars, P- pretty dope if people want to look it up. And, and so, um, sometimes I was good at the job, but I would lose it. The district, I rubbed the district manager the wrong way, like just once. And then it set off a chain reaction. Um, there were times where I was bad at the job. Um, and I, and I was not a good fit. And so I left on my own accord, uh, times that I was, I should, this one job I had, uh, it was this little kiosk in, uh, one of our, like, you know, mid tier malls in Toronto. And we would pour hot wax into these lip balm containers and sell lip balm to people. Pretty cool business idea. Yeah, but yeah. I was not the right yeah. fit because I was a male. And it wasn't until the gig economy that I actually felt like I had a little bit more um, agency and autonomy. And it actually reshaped a lot of my own view of economics. I think prior to being a freelancer and trying to make my own way, I actually felt bad about taking money even from other companies or even taking the idea of taking money from people. Because in my you know 20-year-old uh, mindset, I always viewed that because so much money is siphoning upwards to an elite class, the idea of taking money from my fellow uh, plebeian was a little hard to to reconcile so it wasn't until i you know I, I started doing editing and producing for people and i felt like i have control here because i'm trying to provide as much value as i can so yes i am right. taking money from my fellow peasants at least i'm taking i'm giving them the best uh, offer that i could possibly do and it has uh i would say it's, it's certainly paying off uh at this point so i don't know this is a chance to kind of like uh, unload a little bit on that uh, and i know this is the book that didn't come out so we'll talk to the book that is uh, on its way out. We'll get to that, but but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess, this thing that I'm wondering is like, you know, what was I guess the 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 catalyst or like the motivating factor, or what were some like the key things that stuck out about the gig economy that you felt were worthy of your your attention and time? You know, I have a long history in um, in politics of labor and labor economics. I wrote my PhD on white collar unions in England and why they became militant at a particular time. You know, a long time. Long time, they've been very gentlemanly organizations and they became militant. And I wanted to understand why. So I have this long background. So when I saw the gig economy emerging, I brought some of that to the to the table. And to me, the gig economy is a classic sort of light side, dark side proposition that uh, as you say, it gives people agency. And you know, having been a miserably bad employee many times in my in my own career, and having decided to found my own company in 1991, I'm very aware of the of the downsides of being an employee and the benefits of independence. That said, you know, it's not the same for you with a set of skills and capabilities and a growing track record. Uh, and some dude riding an Uber. It's, you know, there's just, these are, to stick them all into the gig economy is a mistake. Part of the gig economy, the freelance economy, is I think pretty, pretty good. Uh, you know, you can make your way there. It's not easy. If you were living in a country which had universal health care, it would be much easier. Uh, you know, so maybe it will drive us to revisit what we expect employers to do. Uh, I think that's quite likely. But that's, you know, that's only a part of the gig economy. And the rest of the gig economy is really exploitative. Uh, You know, on Mechanical Turk, people are earning two bucks an hour. And if you look at an Uber driver, they may be, their headline rate may be 20 bucks an hour or $22 an hour. But 
the analysis I've seen says, well, their net pay is 10 and it can be lower than that. I think we need to understand that, that just like labor unions emerged in the mid 19th century, and we got a new social contract after the New Deal in the mid 20th century to, to, to rebalance between employers and workers. We need that same kind of digital New Deal, if you like, to rebalance between the platforms and the, and the low-end gig workers. You can take care of yourself, but there are many people with no skills or minimal skills who are at a huge disadvantage. All that employment legislation was protection for those kinds of people in a world where fundamentally employers are powerful and they are not. And we need to redo that deal so that it protects gig workers as well. Okay. Well, I'd like to offer one, I don't know if it's like a full-on solution, but one element of it, which I think would actually ease a lot of uh, the burden here is that, and then and then, and then then we'll move on to the, to the, to the crux of this, yeah. which is that for instance, one of the positions that I had was uh, at a at a home sense, and while you know there's not m- much to really um, be proud of to put on my resume, it's mostly just labor. There are still soft skills that emerge in how Harrison deals with customers um, yeah. in their uh, in, in in their demeanor that maybe they're efficient. Maybe somebody is just like amazing at putting up rugs. So skills can manifest in different ways. But what I found was the most um, unfortunate part about all of it. Um, wasn't whether or not I was on, um, a, you know, like a like an insurance plan or health plan. It was the lack of tipping, the lack of gratuity. Um, we would carry things out to the cars, and we were instructed to refuse tips. So even though we could actually um, turn this into a more equitable living wage for ourselves due to our own quality of work, the company was actually n- uh, disallowing this. And I find that very difficult to to reconcile because I think. If people, there are certain positions or industries that live and die off gratuity in in the service industry, especially, and and it helps make these industries viable. So that you know, people who are running these industry, uh, running these companies, they have all these expenses they need to incur. Many times that they're purchasing things at a loss. You get to, to food, they can't even sell all the food. You know, they, it goes in the it goes in the trash. They can't give it away because then it's a liability, right? And somebody gets sick, they get sued. So it survives off gratuity. So that's one little thing that I really think people need to. Uh, be more lenient on is like no matter what the job is if gratuity you can see from the employee so from the platform's point of view the gig economy gig employers point of view uh all gratuities do is add to the cost of the service and hence reduce demand for it right so it's like getting grocery delivered you know it costs a hundred bucks but then you know, there's there's some hidden uh, delivery fee. That's another ten bucks, and now you feel well. You know, now I got to add fifteen, twenty bucks for a tip, and now you're thinking, well, maybe I just go pick it up. You know, so I'm not defending it. I'm explaining it. I, I agree with you completely, but you know, I would rather say, well, um, let's make. I, I mean, I think the you know, fight for 15 is the right way to go and that it should apply, especially in the gig economy. Uh, you know, even though they're not employees in the traditional sense, I think we have to find a way to apply existing labor law to some aspects of the gig economy. And if it turns out that these platforms are not viable, if these protections are in place, well, too bad. 
that, that's been true in employment for a long time. If you can't make money paying people minimum wage, you don't have a business. Okay, fair enough. You don't have a business. Go do something else. So I have no sympathy for the platforms. Zero. I, I appreciate your insight. And I think the audience can understand that. We can certainly like keep going off on this yeah, thread. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll bring you back. I, I'd love to, to, to pick your brain more about this. But we today we wanted to talk about Amazon. So now that we're all... Um, uh, lovingly warmed up. Let's let's get into this. So before we before we get to talk about Amazon, so we have talked to other people uh, on this show who are experts within Amazon. They understand how you know how it works, and they know how to guide sellers so that they can make the the most out of it. And I've said this in the past about our show is that when we face information that perhaps contests or conflicts with prior information we've collected, our job is to run at it head first. And that's what I want to um, make sure that you're you are free to express yourself however you feel. So you know, don't Absolutely. don't don't hold back just because uh, <laughs> Amazon happens to you know be uh, a platform that uh, many, if not most, of our audience uh, will do or will uh, rely on. So with that, yeah, I would like to start by hearing at what point did Amazon's empiric growth have such an influence on you, you know, to the point of writing and speaking about it and, and, and guesting on, uh, on the podcast. Yes. And so yes. let's, let's go for there. Let's start there. Well, you know, it grew directly out of the gig economy because I um, had people delivering stuff from Amazon to me and I had started talking to them. And they told me that they were gig workers um, and that Amazon was um, really essentially building a gig workforce to do delivery, a, a huge gig workforce. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I've been watching, you know, reading about Amazon a bit. And so I started digging into Amazon, trying to understand, okay, so what's going on here? Is this just gig workers? No, surely not. So then I visited uh, uh, one of the one of their, I call them factories, but warehouses. Uh, if you haven't been and your audience hasn't been to a warehouse, you absolutely should go. Um, I, I have a favorite quotation from William Gibson, a, a Toronto author, right? No, Vancouver author. He said, um, the future is all around us. It's just unevenly distributed. And Amazon is where it's distributed. You can go to those warehouses and you can see the future. And it, it has its functional and its dysfunctional elements. And so what drew me to Amazon was trying to understand, you know, first of all, just sort of how it works. But then I really got interested in, the, in, in its uniqueness. It is such a strange entity. 25 years ago, only 25 years ago, you know, it was founded after I founded my consulting business. It, 25 years ago, it was a tiny bookstore, online bookstore, it was nothing. It wasn't even a pinprick on the backside of, of publishing. And now it's a 400 and odd billion dollar entity, which affects pretty much every person in America, directly or indirectly, which grew by a hundred billion dollars last year. It's astounding. Just the Amazon hired 300,000 people last year. Now, you imagine what it's like to hire one person. Amazon has 6 million sellers on its platform. Its catalog has 500 million items in it. For comparison, Walmart carries 100,000. So what the hell happened? Well, you know, the first 
uh, the first guest that we had, uh, who was an Amazon expert, uh, uh, Steve Pope, he said, um, which by the way, I'll, I can uh, hook you up with all these Amazon yeah, people yeah. if you want uh, to uh, take it to them. And uh, he said, you know, Amazon is half the U.S. economy, or he, he said a U.S. economy, or he might have said world economy. Um, it's been no, it's this been is a while, this is all no, this is all nonsense. Sorry, Amazon is about thirty to forty percent of the e-commerce of e-commerce in the U.S. You just look at U.S. It's about forty percent of e-commerce. Okay, and e-commerce it is possible itself, that he said that, and it's just me like yeah. screwing it up. So I don't want to put it on him. Yeah, e-commerce itself, even after the pandemic, is only fifteen to sixteen percent of retail. They are a small piece of the overall retail sector, and the retail sector itself is a small piece of the economy. So. They appear massive because they impinge on us so often, and we see them. They're very, very visible. But then even though they're growing extremely fast and will be bigger than Walmart soon, and will be the biggest employer in the U.S. soon, they're, they're, not, a, they're not that dominant. I mean, even I wouldn't claim that, no. no. But, you know, the rate, the rate of growth is extraordinary. It's 20 25% a year, and it might be less this year because the pandemic bump will ease off, you know, but they're growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't see that. So you have the bump, and I don't think it's going to go back to um, the point that it was in 2019 because more people have become accustomed to this, accustomed to the convenience of it. Right. And so right. now the floor will have been raised from where it was in 2019, but I can also see not the ceiling that it uh, would have been established at in 2020 and now third of 2021 at this point. It's useful to think in sort of 10-year cycles. So, you know, I ask myself two questions in the book, really, so far as growth is concerned. What, what is the rate of growth of, the, of e-commerce going to be generally? And historically, it's been between one and two percentage points annually. So I, I'm, I'm thinking it is now entering the acceleration phase for new technologies. People are getting more and more used to it. It's about to grow faster. But it would be, so it would be surprising if in 10 years it hasn't added 20 percentage points to its current status. So then a third of the retail market will be online. And the second question is, is Amazon's share of retail going to grow or decline, of e-commerce going to grow or decline? I, I think it's more likely to grow than decline. I, I, Amazon is, is pretty ruthlessly using its pricing power to eat more and more of the uh, electronic marketplace and using its pricing power in ways which I think are probably, well, they're probably illegal. But whether Amazon ever gets nailed for that is another question entirely. We can come to that another time. But the the growth path into the future is one where Amazon at least doubles and probably triples in size over the next 10 years. That's that's a fairly scary proposition to me. It it implies a a concentration of power and... at the current state, it's not much responsibility. Yeah, you know, so I can do because you said uh, electronics, and um, one of the issues with anybody, say, uh, even in my position, you know, just with a, with a fledgling uh, e-commerce store that is not even live because I'm on the Shopify uh, uh, work on your store until you're ready to go plan, is that electronics are a massive liability. So if somebody were to sh- uh, ship one out, it could break on the way there. 
And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a brief point, but I think it's worth mentioning is um, the larger a company like Amazon, the more advantage they have in an, in an area like that, because they, assuming that the electronic is damaged or, or defective, which can which is uh, an issue to face in that particular industry, Amazon can absorb the blow of that, whereas uh, it would put a small uh, Shopify or even a dropshipper, it would put them out of business um, compared to something like, you know, jewelry, which uh, in addition to having high margins, there is a little bit more of an expectation that, you know, this is fragile, I got to be careful with this. So shipping is my problem. But once they get it, it's their problem. So, you know, Amazon is making it clear that it, 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 expect, it is looking for or hoping for and working for an all FBA world, right? It, it wants to simplify its life and wants basically everybody to ship through Amazon. It's making it harder and harder to not ship through Amazon. It's making it easier to just go the FBA route. That's fine for Amazon. It leaves you know sellers with less choice uh, and less control. Uh, but you know you're you're an exact case it, it, for you. If if the damage if, if damaged goods would kill you, then you need to have Amazon be your shipper, right? Isn't that isn't that the reality? Yeah, I mean it's I'm afraid it's worse than that. I mean I wouldn't even want to get into the into that niche whatsoever. Um, right, just because right. having to incur the cost of it, uh, let yeah. alone the shipping, it would it would help to have um, a, a a shipping nexus such as Amazon's to alleviate the burden on that side. But that's one variable. There's a hundred other things that I would worry about as well. Exactly, yeah. plenty. Yeah, so plenty. I, was, I was very particular about which product that I'm getting into with my own e-commerce, and it does not need to be plugged in. So, oh, <laughs> so, okay. so for that, I'm <laughs> so really, that's a start, right? Yeah, it's a start. Right. This is a position that I'm starting to um, uh, think more carefully about, and I expect to be wrong, but that's okay. If I, if I look, one of my um, belief systems is around institutionalization and a way where something can be worked into a collective muscle memory for society. And so one example of this is Google. It got to a point where somebody would say, oh, just Google it. Google had replaced the term search. Um, it being the largest, um, most robust search engine out of all of them, it's clearly by, by many considered to be the best option for searching. At a certain point, I stopped trusting the results. I started to, my, my tinfoil hat spiked up and I started to feel as if the results were more geared toward uh, one side rather than another. So I switched to DuckDuckGo. It was purely an ideological divide between me using uh, DuckDuckGo versus using Google. If not for that, Google would become the search engine uh, of all to the point where competition would be needless. It would be a waste of resources for anybody else to try because it had become so worked into our collective society, societal conscience that it's basically now public utility. Exactly. It is a public utility. And uh, the only argument I would have with you is to say it would happen. No, it has happened. I know DuckDuckGo, I've used it, but the convenience and scope of uh, Google is overwhelming, and I don't know what share of internet search in, in, in certainly in the U.S. Google has, but I would imagine it's well north of ninety percent now. And this, this is no longer a mark. The difference is, is that there are even if it's just a crack, 
the the fact that there are cracks um, is where things are uh, an issue principally because there are other searches. It's not just DuckDuckGo. Uh, there are there's Bing and there are other ones as well. Yeah, but I don't. I think I think I think that's a mistake. I mean, that is to say. So I'm pushing back here. Um, no problem. No problem. I want to hear it. If if the market is ninety percent dominated by Google, the fact that ten percent is not is effectively irrelevant. That uh, these people are scrabbling around on the margin. They are in 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 reality they are provi- providing a fig leaf for Google's um, monopoly power. So the fact that they exist from an economic perspective is irrelevant because Google sets prices. Google sets the terms of engagement with customers. Google controls almost all the customers. Um, advertisers have to come to Google. That's why Google has the incredible. Uh, margins and results. I mean, it it can't waste money fast enough on all its other p- insane projects um, to account for the gusher that it's sitting on. And this is because it's a monopoly. It, it, it may pretend not. I mean, there are economic tests for what is a monopoly. And basically, the, the sort of core test is, do you have pricing power? Can you set your prices? And the answer for Google is absolutely yes. You know, so um, Amazon is a bit different because of the marketplace, uh, and I think Amazon, so you know, everybody in your audience knows what the marketplace is. Most other people don't really understand that a majority of what's sold on Amazon is not sold by Amazon. And most people really don't understand that Amazon loses an absolute ton of money on its own e-commerce, which it makes up from other sources, including marketplace vendors. This is not really sustainable, and it, and it seems to me inevitable that Amazon will move quite quickly towards being a marketplace-dominant entity. That is, the marketplace will become more important, and Amazon's 1P business will become less important. That's been happening for 20 years. It's going to accelerate. So, so there, the monopoly is a different kind of monopoly. Amazon has a monopoly over retail platforms. So if you want to sell something, you got to sell on Amazon. You don't really have much choice. Right. So what we have, um, so the reason why I, I was making that institutionalization uh, relation is because, like, like you're saying, the majority of, of sellers are, are independents who are using the platform. And this can be a good thing. The reason why I don't see it as a good thing right now is because, from, from my understanding, is that brands don't really get to have that much presence. So even if I order something and I, I still to this day can't remember the brand name of my bed, but I know it's on Amazon brand. And so it seems to me that Amazon is uh, restricting people's ability to grow their brand and have that kind of presence on it. As long as they're on Amazon, the only brand that matters is Amazon, regardless of what the seller is doing. And therefore, they're forced to deal with things on a price basis rather than a, a story basis. So this is, the, I think you're, absolutely on the money here. I have a chapter in my book about brands. And I, I think Amazon is, is fundamentally the anti-brand. It's not, it's not that Amazon's own brands, you know, Amazon Basics and things like that, they are not real brands. What is, a, what is a real brand? It's a brand where you create an emotional connection to your customer so that the customer is more likely to seek out your product or to pay a, a premium for it right? That's the point of brands. But on Amazon, everything is driven by search. There is no brand. I think this notion, you know, Amazon has been very clever in in persuading brands to pay for storefronts, 
and for video upgrades and whatnot, all in the name of creating their own brand on Amazon. I think this is total bullshit. <laughs> I don't think anybody searches on Amazon for a brand. They search for, a, you know, a headphones or underwear. They don't search for Hanes. They may search for Hanes. I mean, it's possible. About 30% of searches are branded searches. So it's not, you know, entirely impossible. All the work that brands do off Amazon leaks into the platform. So there's a lot of advertising on TV and on radio about particular brands. That's what it's all about. And that leaks into um, searches on Amazon. That's fine. But in terms of what actually goes on on the platform, it's all about discovery through search, not discovery through brands. And so if you want to have a brand, you have to have your brand off Amazon. You may need to use Amazon to sell because that's where all the customers are. We can talk about the importance of Prime in a little bit. But if you want to actually build a connection to those customers, you can't do it through Prime, through, through Amazon. No, I, I, I agree completely. And, and some have tried too. Um, like, like going yeah. back to the My Mattress example is, you know, we've right. received a slip. You know, there was a, there was a brand name in there. There was there, because there wasn't any, any, mar the, their marketing, marketing has to start a lot sooner. Marketing has to start before the purchase is made. People want to uh, agree to the mission first, oftentimes before they agree to uh, support the mission. So by the time I had received it, I, I'm in the middle of like a hundred other things. I'm not, I, I'm just not mentally investing any time into it. Right. And, and, and you make a good point there because the other thing is how many mattresses is you going to buy? You're just going to buy one. Yep. Right? And the next time you buy a mattress is 10 years from now. So any little slip that they might give you after you buy is entirely useless. Right. Right. It's yeah. not, as you pointed out, you have to get to the customer before they buy. And on Amazon, that's all about features and price. Yeah. Although, you know, and, uh, and sub, reviews, sub, sub tangent, but this, this one was a piece of crap. We just needed something to have so we didn't sleep on the floor. Okay. Next so one we get though, years. the next one we get though will be a branded mattress because we've done our research and we know who's been marketing to us and we've seen, you know, mm -hmm. we've seen advertisements. You know, I listen right. to a lot of podcasts too. Mattresses and podcasts, they, they, they're bedfellows, pardon the expression. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, though, it will be interesting to see because one can imagine. So those there's all that marketing going on from all these brands, right? But there are some Amazon native mattress brands. And their gig is that they offer all the same features as good quality, thousands and thousands of reviews and lower prices. So you'll have that choice to make. When you get your next mattress, you're going to compare the mattress you heard about offline with the mattress you see online in the search box because they pay for sponsored ads that will present themselves to you. I, you know, you'll have to decide whether you're going to pay more money so that people can send you TV ads. Okay. And not, not clear. You know, if I, so, uh, my, one of my greatest fears is always like, you know, running out of questions in the middle of an interview. But this is like the opposite <laughs> of it, where I have a, such an abundance of things to, to, to talk <laughs> yeah. about that I'm actually having yeah. a hard time like figuring out exactly how I want to transition this. So let's go with uh, the let's go with the we we briefly mentioned like the 10 year overchin window, but I want to get a very clear picture of like so it's 10 years, it's 2031. Um, yeah. Where do you okay? So worst, give me your worst case scenario. Give me your ideal case scenario. What would you like to see? Uh, happen in a way that's you know as fair and as equitable to as many people as it can. 
look, I think Amazon is a brilliant company. I think they are unique. I think they built a unique culture that with some modest modifications could be good for everyone. Um, Amazon's culture is customer obsessed by their own admission. They talk about it as a religious mission. It's like joining the Jesuits or the Marines, right? It's, it, you have to commit. I mean, I've worked for large companies. You probably work for large companies. And, and what they want is compliance, right? They want you to go along with the mission or whatever they pretend the mission is. I mean, company mission statements are pretty much bullshit. But, you know, they, they, they want you to go along. Amazon has no interest in that. They want belief. They want commitment. They want you to be in the trenches fighting with them, pretending that it's a startup. That's, that's the culture. And so the problem with that kind of culture is that it has no interest in or even recognition of collateral damage. Right? I have this sort of metaphor or image of Amazon originally as this little pipe-laying company that used to put fiber optic pipes down the middle of the street. And that was fine. It was great. And it made its pipes and people were happy because they got fiber optic cable and whatever. And gradually it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And this machine is now huge. And it's just plowing down the middle of Main Street and it's running over old ladies and, and kicking <laughs> kids out of prams, knocking cars out of the way, knocking buildings over. And it's getting bigger and bigger as it does this. And so what was tolerable as a small company is no longer tolerable. And Amazon has 1.2 million employees. It's no longer a small scrappy startup. And to pretend that the only thing that matters is the customer is really wrong. They have responsibilities to other stakeholders now, to their employees, employees, to the communities they serve. And they, in a certain way, they have a responsibility to, to the customer beyond conditioning them to expect their package next day, right? And, uh, you know, Amazon touches everything now. Uh, I have a piece in the book about just how many different ways they touch Baltimore. And it's extraordinary. It's all over the place through AWS, through their, their packing, uh, you know, their, their um, warehouses, through their outreach into the community. I mean, it's incredible. So what we need, and, and so that's one thing. And the second thing is Amazon is fundamentally secretive. They take co normal corporate secrecy to the extreme. And in doing so, I think they reveal the flaws in secrecy. You know, this dates back to the 16th century, to the foundation of corporations, the East India Company, char royal charters and the like. And the idea was these people needed to be private so that they could, uh, could create markets. And I, I think that our notion that corporation, that everything corporations should do should be private is just out of date. We personally are not private anymore. Our digital overlords know everything about us. We are walking naked across the digital plane. They can uh, impose a, a, a colonoscopy on us at any moment they care to look at our digital world. And we know nothing about them. They're under no obligation to tell us anything. So your friends who sell on Amazon don't even know how the algorithm works that, that defines who wins the buy box. They know nothing. 
They don't know how Amazon in aggregate treats its justice system, suspensions, reinstatements, fees, nothing. This is not tolerable. And we have a different model out there, which is the utility model, where utilities are accepted as monopolies and in exchange, they accept certain um, limitations on what they can do. And that, and that is not exactly relevant here, but what is relevant is that they have to reveal everything about their business. Because they're a monopoly, the market doesn't do it. So we have to know what are their labor costs? What are their capital costs? How do we get to the right price for them? I don't want that kind of regulation, that detailed pricing regulation for Amazon. It's not necessary, but I want them to be forced to reveal their inner workings. They are big enough and monopoly enough that hiding behind secrecy is, is just untenable. Imagine a world in which Amazon had to tell you everything, had to tell you what its turnover rate was in the market, in the warehouses. I think their turnover rate in the warehouses is probably north of 100% a year. That is more, more than their entire workforce leaves. Well, that's different from the picture that Amazon paints. You know, the, few, the people they trot out to tell us how wonderful life is in the, work, in the warehouses. Being forced to reveal what is going on in Amazon on the platform, in the warehouses. And look, 10 years from now, Amazon is going to be a huge presence in your personal home, in particular, helping to manage your health care. Alexa will be the gateway between you and the healthcare system. And if Amazon is allowed to do that entirely in secret and without knowing what they do with that data, that's very worrying. So that was my rant for the day. Okay. So the idea of relying on the government who themselves are, you know, bastions of transparency it seems like the maybe the, having the government do the reveal is wishful thinking so what would it take in order to uh, to expose and to have enough of um of, of a collective um uh, enough collective pressure to um yeah to basically do what you're what, what is what you're uh, three things uh, okay go ahead go ahead in, in these three things first we, we need a new deal we need a digital new deal that ex that that outlines what is acceptable behavior for a for a platform? For example, there should there should be a, 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 um, a demand that platforms be non-discriminatory. That you know they should not be allowed to offer different prices to different people. It, it's sort of like net neutrality for platforms, right? That, that so that kind of regulation that just says, look, you have to be fair. And there are a number of different places where one. In, the, in, in my book, I have a sort of charter, if you like, of what, this, what the boundaries of this new digital new deal should look like. So you need that. Then you're right. You need the capacity to enforce it. And I think you need a new regulator, honestly. And I, I think you need a huge new regulator because these companies are huge. You know, a couple of hundred Justice Department lawyers, most of whom don't know anything about the digital economy, is not going to cut it. You need a digital regulator. I think the Europeans understand this, though probably they will over-bureaucratize it because that's what they do. Um, and I think that the digital platforms, the big players, should pay for it. That's fine. We don't need taxes. We can just 
is user fees and they can pay a couple of billion a year between them to run a big, smart, fast entity. And the third thing uh, comes from Amazon itself. Amazon, as you may know, uh, runs on APIs, on application programming interfaces. Why is that? Because Amazon has thousands of small teams. And it's impossible to have thousands of small teams if you don't have electronic information exchange. They would just drown in information overload and emails, right? I mean, it would be impossible. You couldn't, you couldn't possibly manage it. So very smartly, 20 years ago, they moved to an API model. This is great. It means that those APIs are available for regulators. The, the notion that you can do antitrust on Amazon and say, okay, in, in, the, you know, in the fall of 2020, during the pandemic, you were um, pricing too high or pricing too low. And so you know, the regulators spend a couple of years mulling this over, and they say, yes, okay, there's a case here. Let's do some discovery. So Amazon gives them 10 million or 10 billion documents to go through, right? And they go through that, and you know, two more years, three more years pass, and finally it starts to reach the courts. And eight years in, we're finally in trial, right? Yeah. But that's the good part, because Amazon then turns around and says, well, you know, in the fall of 2020, in during the Christmas season, and this is this is actually a fact, we made 10 billion pricing changes. Which ones are you pointing to? I mean, this is ludicrous. This, this model is a 19th century model for managing a 21st century problem. You have to do it in real time. You have to do it electronically. You have to have tools that will monitor those price changes just like Amazon does and say, okay. We can see where Amazon's pricing is predatory. We can see where it's below cost. And Amazon does price below cost. Well, that, that means that its competitors are underwater, right? Because in a search-driven environment, they have to match prices. Amazon can kill anybody. By the way, if you're a current user of Debutify or haven't tried us out yet, Debutify version 3 has been released and now is a good time to upgrade or get started as any. A streamlined user interface along with an ever-increasing array of conversion-boosting add-ons is waiting for you. So download today for free and start your journey. Who knows? Maybe I'll be interviewing you before too long. I, I did uh, notice one of your um, well, one of your articles. It was a, a case study on... Let me see. I actually had uh, opened up the website too just because... It was, oh, did I, Gearflow? You, yeah, you sure. wrote an article about that. So I think this would be uh, helpful to, to touch on. So uh, before we get into that, one thing I also wanted to tell to, let you, to tell you about was, so a previous position that I had held, we were uh, trying to adopt the kind of scaling model that Amazon had adopted, which is uh, operate business at a loss until enough control is established that competition can no longer work their way in. It was like the Amazon, but for luxury watches. Uh, didn't work. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> head, head office is still fine, but the the losses were just ramping up too quickly because you're you're trying to convince a business who had already had one model, um, and they were slowly growing from there to now suddenly go 10x, uh, have a bunch of different locations, and you know, uh, God, God bless my my boss for giving it a try. Like his his logic was sound. It's just that the company just was not willing to like keep it going for, for X amount of time. Um, so different companies are trying to do this where they're trying to price out the competition, not 
on the scale that Amazon is, but at the very least within their uh, within their their target market. Now, saying price out, I feel like I'm being a little bit too mean to Gearflow. So let me. Uh, they're specifically that, but, not doing yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. But what they are trying to do is have a platform comparable in terms of what kind of level of service people are expecting, where they can go there, they can. Uh, they, no, they're no? not okay. expecting to be right, comparable. I, you see, this is okay. a this is the key. So, so two points emerge from what you said. Number one, I think trying to compete with Amazon on price is idiocy. I think you you cannot underprice Amazon because that's what they do. That's their model. They come into a new market or a new segment, you know, like what Gearflow does, which serves um, construction equipment parts, you know, pieces for bulldozers, that kind of stuff. And they come in and they look and see what bulldozer parts really sell, and they underprice them. And their model is to not have expertise not treat it as a niche, treat it as a mini um, mass market, right? There's nothing special about this. It's not a luxury model. It's just, we're going to compete with you on price and delivery. That's what we do. Uh, so if you think you can compete with Amazon on price, you're delusional because price Amazon doesn't have to relate its price to its cost. It just keeps uh, cutting, cutting prices until it achieves market share. That's what it does. So how do you compete with this? You have to rely on non-price characteristics and features, right? So Gearflow has deep expertise in these parts. They know exactly what part fits with what model, what precise model. If you go on Amazon, what you get is the page, right? You get the, the detail page of the product, and it tells you a bit. But it sure does not tell you this mo this model works with this, 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 and this. And no, it doesn't work with that, 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 and that. And if you want that, you got to go somewhere else. Is the other part. No, it's not interested in that. It's just come in, buy your product. If it doesn't work, we'll we'll send it back. Right? No problem with returns. Except for Gearflow, Gearflow is serving a market where every day of a, of a big construction project that doesn't have the right part is a million bucks, right? They cannot afford Amazon's sale or return. So instead, Gearflow is offering expertise and service in a fairly deep way. And I think that's a model that has opportunity because Amazon is never going to do that. They're never going to build the expertise. It's not what they do. That's why Amazon's foray into high-end apparel and fashion is hilarious. I mean, bluntly, it's just hilarious. They, they're, it's hubris and hilarious, just like their entry into groceries is hubris. It, it, it's ridiculous. Honestly, they're going to, they, this is going to be the biggest failure of Amazon's entire history, grocery. It won't cost them a huge amount of money, but it's, it's not going to work. So, so there are ways to compete with Amazon by building your brand off the platform, by building alternative platforms. I have a piece coming out about how Rockwell and other um, manufacturing automation companies need to get together to share information so that they can prepare for the transition to a digital world, right? Right now, you have these manufacturing uh, companies that have monitoring equipment and they stick it next, stick it on a machine. It monitors stuff. It's not connected. The data isn't connected. 
Amazon's is, and they're now entering that market, and it will be much better because they have more data. So better prepare, but not by trying to underprice Amazon. It's, it's just futile. Well, uh, I mean, it seems like the only uh, viable option is to, uh, okay, I'm about to say overprice, uh, but um, by by increasing the prices, and then within that, people understand that what they're paying for is the service. It is the expertise. It is the quality. And people will be happy to do that. Professional people, business people know that lowest price isn't in the end the lowest cost, right? That there are other costs associated with getting things wrong and, and making sure you have the right expertise on a job. Uh, so I, I do think there are opportunities there, but you know, the Amazon model is extremely difficult to address. I'm sure people on your platform, you know, who are small sellers find this on all the time, though they also find that Amazon is not unbeatable uh, on its own platform because, you know, bluntly managing 20 million supply chains is really, really difficult and they're not that good at it. You know? So there are opportunities you can find and, Chinese sellers certainly seem to have found that. I mean, there are an awful lot of Chinese manufacturers on Amazon's platform. I've got you for uh, for another 10 minutes. And so I also wanted yeah. to make sure that we touched on Amazon Prime because we did say we were going to get to that. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. So this, I want to make sure I got the statistic right. I found this pretty shocking that 82% of U.S. households are Amazon Prime members. Did I get that right? Actually, I think it's more than that now. Okay. Um, the, in fact, the latest estimate that I saw, which was hilarious, I, I cannot decide whether to just not believe any of it or think, yeah, well, maybe it's true. Um, there are 125 million U.S. households, according to the census, about 125 million. And the last estimate that I saw said that there are 140 million U.S. prime members, right? So there's more than one per household, which I suppose is possible because there are increasing number of young people who obviously have Amazon Prime and who are roommates, housemates. So one can imagine amongst millennials, that number is quite high. I mean, there are multiple Amazon households. But it's still it's staggering to think that this, this club has become absolutely ubiquitous across America. It's, it's staggering. And it is absolutely Amazon's customer superglue, right? Once you have Prime... That basically guarantees that the first place you look is Amazon. And, you know, I think Walmart's effort to build a competitor is, is doomed. It, it's really mainly an effort to retain its existing customers and to make a bit of extra money out of it. it it's not a competitor. There's no, there's no way. That, that course is gone. The door is bolted. It's over. Um, and and that gives Amazon an unbeatable advantage in e-commerce in the U.S. They have all the customers, and whatever your FBA, your, your platform people may bitch and moan about Amazon, there's nowhere else to go. You know, I I talked to a number who said we would like we tried Walmart Plus. We would love to be on Walmart Plus and the new Target platform and whatever. It's not where the customers are. You can't avoid Amazon. So, um, you know, Prime is the is is absolutely the super glue that holds together the whole retail side, and it's brilliant. I mean, who would have thought you could sell shoes by getting Golden Globes? What a what a brilliant idea! And and they keep adding to it. It's like you know, it's like 
that dude who shows up at, at his girl's place in the middle of the in the middle of the night with more flowers, obsessively serving to try and make sure that they don't even think about going somewhere else. That's Amazon. And they treat their customers brilliantly. Brilliantly. Why would you leave Amazon really realistically? Just as a consumer, they give you faster and faster shipping. They make sure that the prices on their platform if not the lowest possible price are low enough, not worth going to look somewhere else unless it's a big purchase. It's just not worth it. And, and trustworthy. Customer service matters. So why, why would a customer go anywhere else? I mean, tell me. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm all ears. Yeah. I don't see it. Well, okay. So, so, Black, so last Black Friday uh, I, was when we decided we were going to get our TV for our apartment. And I said, mm -hmm. I'm not going to buy this on Amazon. I have got to support somebody else. I just right. gotta. So I, I ordered a TV from from Canada Computers, and not you know not to end on a, a rather uh, bleak uh, point uh, so close to our wrap up here, but um, you know Canada Computers is is a fine company. They've been around for a while, and a lot of their sim similar to Gearflow, a lot of their business comes from the expertise of the people who shop with them. They're looking for specific computer parts. They need specific computer expertise, and so that's um, what uh, helps them stay stay relevant. Sure. Sure. Um, so that's them, but they're not exactly like mom and pop. They're still a, a nationwide chain. So the the depressing uh, thought about this is, A, I mean, you have a number of businesses who have either shut down completely or are at reduced capacity, reduced operation because of the uh, pandemic, whereas Amazon is continuing, like was continuously gaining um, uh, 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 revenue uh, out of that, which again, tinfoil hat uh, completely upright due to that. It's, it can be very depressing to think, well, I'm going to support a mom and pop business, but you know, am I am I just am I just um, uh, uh, giving them some water while they drown? You know, so th thankfully, one of the things that I take great pride in in doing this show and trying to uh, reach out to to other people and to and to build my own nexus of understanding is that e-commerce um, building a brand is the the seed. It is the beginning of this. It is having a mission, you know, not just selling a product, but really believing in in the objective of the product. And I can say with certainty that the, you know, it took me a while. It took me about like eight months before I, I started my own my own brand, having started this show, uh, because I can't do anything quickly um, <laughs> except talk, apparently. But <laughs> I, I, you know, I really mean it when I when I sell, and that helps keep me in the right state of mind, which is I, I believe in my mission. And if that makes it difficult to, to turn a profit right away, that's fine. My mission isn't going, it doesn't suddenly become ir like um, uh, irrelevant because I, I wasn't able to sell enough drawers. You know, what I believe in, I would have to, I would have to uh, lose on the psychological level before I give up on my brand. Maybe my product doesn't work. That's okay. I, I can do affiliate marketing. I can talk about other products. I can do promotion while I uh, generate uh, my own my own authority. So it, it it comes down to that. Is like, do you do you believe in your fellow human being, and do you want to support someone who's really trying to make a, a significant difference? And you know, we all we all have to make a little bit of extra sacrifices on our own too. We also have to we have to be willing to wait two weeks sometimes to receive something. We have to understand that convenience um, is, is, is will always come at a cost in one way, and even if it doesn't cost us, it costs it costs somebody. I know that we I, I knew this going into the conversation. I know the conditions that people endure when they work there, which is why I can never see myself working there, even if 
you know, the, the sky is falling and I lose everything else. I, it's just, it's just unconscionable. So uh, to me, Amazon is the last resort. If I can't get it anywhere else, but I still need it, I go to Amazon. Right. Well, more people, I mean, you know, there are people, there are people who believe that there are people who avoid Amazon, but the reality is that Amazon gets new customers every day and it gets more new customers than customers leave in a, in a, or, or check out, you know, there's no sign that Amazon is suffering. It's still, you know, the first or second most trusted company in America. And from a consumer perspective, that's pretty understandable. Uh, so, you know, I think the, I think the model that, that works best for everyone is that Amazon gradually gets out of retail altogether on its own behalf. And then it just specialize in running the world's best e-commerce platform. I think everybody would be happy to give Amazon 15% of the take to do that. I, I think, you know, it's probably overdoing the advertising already and is hurting its brand by doing too much advertising on, on it. So there are limits to that. If Amazon could get out of the business of actually selling products, I think that would suit everybody best. Well, when they're continuing to, to I believe, they're continuing to take a loss at it anyways. So they are, they, you know, and it's sort of inevitable. I mean, look, in, in what conceivable world does Amazon have a competitive advantage in furniture? I mean, you know, Ikea is better at it. They just are. So is Wayfair. They're specialized. They know what they're doing. Amazon is in there and it's grabbing for revenue because its whole model is revenue growth. That's how it knows that it is satisfying more customers, right? It's meeting its mission by growing. And that's top line growth, but not profit. So it, it keeps expanding into more and more unprofitable areas. This is inevitably not going to be sustainable. So eventually, I think Amazon will get out of retail. I don't, I don't, why would you be in retail when you can own the platform, have no inventory risk, no inventory cost, make more profit, and have far less grief from all the, all the regulators? I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's just that their own history is against it, and eventually they'll have to overcome that. Well, with with that, I think I'm gonna have to let you go. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I'm certainly certainly learned a lot. You know, gave me gave me a lot to, to think about, and uh, you know, I look forward to uh, revisiting this, this conversation. Is fun. It is, yeah. yeah, yeah. If, if you have any final words or any uh, parting wisdoms, a preferred Chinese proverb you like, you're welcome <laughs> to share it, and then let the audience know how they can look into more of what you do. Uh, yeah. So I, I think, you know, all of us use Amazon and to some degree, all of us need to understand a bit about the, the costs and benefits for everybody, not just for yourself. So I encourage people to just sort of dig in a little bit and understand a bit more about Amazon and the, and the online economy. Um, they can find me at robingaster.com. Uh, I encourage them to buy the book and learn a lot more about, <laughs> about Amazon than they probably want to learn. And to sort of consider the reality that we're living in a, an increasingly digital world and we don't have digital rules of the road. So that's what I would leave you with. What are those rules? Well, with that to our audience, uh, I don't have to hope. I know you've uh, been given a lot to think about today. So uh, uh, let us know if you have anything that you want to follow us up with. You can email 
podcast at dbeautify.com. And uh, to my um, illustrious guest, uh, Dr. Robin Gaster, it is fun to call somebody a doctor. Not going to lie. It is so good to call somebody <laughs> a doctor. Just, uh, uh, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been a blast having you. And I look forward to uh, picking up where we left off. So Terrific. I look forward so to that too. Terrific. And to my audience, all the best. Take care. And we will check in soon. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at Debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to Debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. <laughs>